This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Before I get into my message, as I'm singing the song, you give and take away, blessed be your name. It's easy to praise God when He gives, isn't it? We'll come, bring it on, Lord. You know, we love the giving part. The sign of maturity and a person that walks with God is when they can bless the name of the Lord when He takes away. We're going to look at a man today. What a story. I I want to find out. I need to go back and find out who submitted the story of Job uh, to be done this summer. We asked our congregation to give us uh, their favorite Bible stories, and we've been doing that this summer. And somebody said Job, and I thought, well, who can I give that to Tom? I can't do that to Tom. And uh, who can? And I said, I got to do this myself. And I'll, I'll, be, I'll be honest with you, I have looked, for 25 years I've been preaching here, and for 25 years I have avoided the story of Job. True story. Why? Because it's so doggone hard to figure out, to come to grips with. But somebody said, I want to hear the story of Job. I said, Okay, Lord, this must be the time, and so we're going to jump into it. Now, I'll tell you the truth right up front. There's no way. It's 42 chapters long. We're not going to be able to do a whole lot of detail. We're going to kind of hit the highlights, give some applications, but I hope it kind of, kind of causes you to have a thirst to go back and read this entire story because it is an amazing story. But, uh, but we're, going to, we're going to try to handle Job, uh, Job's story as best we can Uh, this morning. Listen, if Satan dared God to let him loose on you, called your name before God, said, God, how about turning me loose on whatever whatever your name is? If Satan dared God to do that, and Satan said, and when you do, God, I promise you something, he, she is going to deny you, curse you, disown you. If you suffered unimaginable loss, would the devil be right? Is your God, and a lot of people in this country today, this is their God. Is your God a pie in the sky, giver of prosperity and perfect health? Is is that who he is? Is that all that he does? Is your God the, the one who only allows the good things in your life? And when bad things, unexplainable things happen in your life, do you begin to doubt your faith? Do you begin to question, gee whiz, God, I don't know if you're even there. There's a lot we can learn from the biblical story, a true story about this man named Job. Um, so it's about a godly man, a righteous man, suffering not for his sins, but because Satan challenged God that he could make Job curse God. So due to no wrong of his own doing, this man suffered horribly. Of course, the big question when it comes to Job, and this is the, the question that they tried to answer in the, book, in the story of Job, is why? Why has this happened? And there's no way to go, as I said, through all the stories, details in this one message. So we're going to run through it, pull out some applications, and I hope you gain much from it. But just a few things that you should know about the book and the story of Job in case you decide to read it and learn from it on your own, which I hope you will do. I want you to meet Job. Let me give you just a few points about this story, about this man. First of all, it's the oldest book in the Bible. Right? Oldest story in the Bible um, Job, you know, it was written before Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, and it is a story. If you go and read it, please understand this. 
Please understand what you'll have a hard time understanding. It is a book of Eastern poetry. Right? It's from the Middle East, and it's a poetic book. There are a bunch of poetic books in the middle of the Old Testament. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. I think those are the ones. I had to take a class my freshman first year of seminary on Old Testament poetic books. Our, my, our professor's name was Dr. Schrader. His nickname was Schrader the Shredder. And uh, he was a nice guy, but you talk about tough class. And, and I remember going and taking my final exam. And I studied for my final. And I sat down and looked at the final, and I began to read it, and I wanted to cry. All the questions were essay. you got to answer them. I was looking for some true, false, you know, A, B, C, D. You get lucky with those things, you know. I really wanted to cry, and I, but I passed the class. But, but tough, tough class looking at Hebrew poetry. And so... That's what this book is. Uh, it's hard, very different kind of read. Secondly, Job was a contemporary of Abraham, meaning he and Abraham lived around the same time. He was not a fictional character. He was a real historical man. He was mentioned by Ezekiel and by James in the New Testament. Uh, he was not a Jew, but he was a man who worshipped the one true God. So that tells us a few things about Job. It tells us he did not have all the revelation that we're privilege to have in our hands this morning in, in a copy of the Word of God. He didn't have any of this, none of it. His wife didn't have the Bible. His friends didn't have the Bible. There was no Bible at that time. So we need to be careful about judging those people in the story based upon what the Bible says. And Because we'll read things they say, well, well, don't they know that Jesus said? And the answer is no, they didn't. You know? They didn't know any of those things that are printed in the scripture, they, but they did know the one true God. At least Job did. We can't say, you know, compare what they said to what the scripture says. So compared to us this morning here, and we all have access to the word of God. By the way, if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we want to give you one today. So stop at our Welcome Center. If you don't own one, let us, let us put one in your hands. We're privileged to have the scriptures. He lived in northern Arabia, in the land of Uz. And if you're wondering, so I know some people right away, he lived in Arabia. He must have been a Muslim. Um, and the answer is, of course, he was not a Muslim. The answer is, uh, no, he wasn't. He couldn't have been a Muslim because Muhammad, the founder of Islam, lived 600 years after Christ. And Job lived 2,000 years before Christ. So there was no such thing as Islam. So he was not. He was a believer in the one true God, the same God that you and I believe in. Fourth, he was a very rich man. Now, there are some who believe that to be rich materially must mean that you've lived an evil life. The only way people get rich is by stealing from the poor. That's how some people believe. Not so. And some people believe this, that if you're poor, that means you're somehow closer to God. Again, not so. And the book of Job proves that. Jesus did say, you know, it's hard for a rich man to have a relationship with God. But he didn't say it was impossible. He didn't say it was out of the question. He didn't say wealth is some kind of evil or sin. No such thing in the Bible. How was Job rich? Let me give you one, two, three, four ways he was rich real quick. He was rich in faith. If you have your Bible open to the first chapter of Job, verses 4 and 5. Let me start with verse 1. There was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of perfect integrity who feared God, revered God, respected God, worshiped God, however you want to explain that word feared, and turned away from evil. Verse 4, 
His sons used to take turns at having banquets at their homes. Some of the scholars say that his family, every time one of the kids had a birthday party, and he had 10 kids, they would, they would, they would, whoever had the birthday would have a big party for all the family at their home. They would send an invitation out to their three sisters, the sons would, to eat and drink with them. And whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them. How? Rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. Job, Job's no dummy. Job knows what's going on at these parties, and he knows they probably partied a little bit too heartily. And so he goes and said, Lord, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to offer offerings for them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned having cursed God in their hearts. Certainly they wouldn't say those things out loud, but maybe in their hearts they've cursed God. So that, this was Job's regular practice. He was rich in faith. Job couldn't imagine anything worse than his children cursing God in their hearts. Nor can I. That's about the worst thing I can imagine as a father. Secondly, he was rich in family. Verse 2. He had seven sons and three daughters. Ten kids. All right, rich in family. He was rich in fortune. Verse 3, the very first part of the verse, his estate included 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. And you, you wonder, well, how come, what do, I doesn't mention the male donkeys. Female donkeys in, in that time, in that culture, I mean, they were the milk producers, not cows so much, but female donkeys. So he had all these female donkeys. All he needed was a couple male donkeys, and those male donkeys, they were the happiest donkeys in the land. But he had 500, some of you, it's kind of gradually settling in there, 500 female donkeys and a very large number of servants. He was rich, rich in fortune, and then he was rich in fame. The end of verse 3 says he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Greatest man. Everybody knew Job. Rich in fame. Uh, then, then another thing about Job is he was alone in his faith. You read the story and you, and you kind of figure out his wife didn't appear to have the same kind of faith as did her husband. And again, it's not unusual for one spouse to be a strong believer and the other weaker in the faith, maybe not a believer at all. Lots of us here today are in marriages like that. And as we'll see Job, in the story, Job's wife was not an encourager to him during this time. But before we judge her, let's, let's stop and remember this. She's lost the same things that Job has lost. All right. So before we step all over her, let's realize the things that she's lost as well. Number six, he was a perplexed man. He could not explain why God was allowing him to suffer so badly. Job, his story, and what happens with him in this story shows, shows us that we can't know or understand everything. Sometimes, listen to me, sometimes there are no obvious reasons why. And Job is so perplexed that at one point he confesses, I wish I had never been born. That's despair, isn't it? But better if I'd never been born. And many people look at his story and think the theme of this story is this. Why does a loving and righteous God permit the godly like Job to suffer? Why? Problem is, you can read through the whole story of Job and that question is never answered. Never answered. Maybe the better idea of a theme for this story is how do the righteous suffer? Because here's what happened to Job. 
After this brief description of this man, we're taken in the story in chapter 1 into the throne room of heaven for a glimpse into God's staff meeting. There God's angels met with the Lord to give an account of how they were performing their duties. You see, angels just don't, just don't hang around heaven floating on clouds playing harps. That's not what they do. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation. Now let me say this. We, we did this in a sermon, I think, last summer. Angels are not people who have died. When somebody dies, don't say, heaven just got another angel. That's baloney. We don't die and become angels. Angels were created at creation to be angels. They're different beings than you and I. You will never, you have never been and will never be an angel. All right? So keep that in mind. But the angels gathered together to rehearse with God what they've been doing, and Satan, who is an angel, decided to attend this meeting. So God asks him a question. He probably goes around the room, all the angels, and says, What have you been up to, Satan? Satan says, I've been roaming around the earth. Peter echoes that when he wrote, be sober to the church. Be sober. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is running around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. He's looking for people who are following Christ that he can trip up and ruin. So God asks the devil, well, hey, you look running around the earth looking for people. Have you considered my servant Job down there in Uz? Take a look at Job. No one else on earth is like him. He's a man of perfect integrity. He's a man who fears me. He's a man who turns away from evil. It was like God was daring the devil to try and destroy Job's faith and testimony. Well, Satan replies to him and Satan says to him, hey, you know, the only reason Job fears you, the only reason Job serves you is because he's so doggone rich. You've given him so much. You've blessed everything. Everything he touches turns to gold. Look with me at verse 11 and 12 there in chapter 1. Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Verse 10, Haven't you placed a hedge around him? You're, you're protecting him. His household and everything he owns, you've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But I dare you, if you'll stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns, he will surely curse you to your face. I betcha, the devil told God. Within just a few days, this wealthy, godly man, listen, he lost all of his livestock. His servants were murdered and killed by lightning. And while all of his ten children were celebrating one of these birthday parties, a storm, probably something like a tornado, came and destroyed the house that they were in and killed all ten. He lost everything. Did it work? Did he curse God? Did it cause him to look at God and say, I curse you with all that was, is within me? Look at verse 20. Then Job, after all this happened, he stood up and he tore his robe. He shaved his head. Those were action, actions of humility, actions of mourning. And he fell to the ground and worshiped, saying, Naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Praise the name of the Lord. And throughout all this, Verse 22, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. So the next staff meeting, God again told Satan, see, I, I, I told you, you could not make Job curse me. So Satan said, I'll tell you what, here's one thing you did not do. Let, let me strike him physically. 
because pain will cause him to curse you. So God said, okay, do whatever you want to him, but you can't kill him. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. So Satan left the Lord's presence and infected Job with terrible boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat among the ashes. His wife looked at him sitting in the ashes, scraping these boils with this broken piece of pottery. And in anger and bitterness and whatever her emotions, losing all of her children, seeing her husband like that, she said, do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. He said to her, you speak as a foolish woman speaks. He told her, should we accept only good from God and not adversity? And through all this, Job did not sin in what he said. It sounds to me like God had a lot of confidence in this man. Well, Job had these three friends. Their names were Eliphaz, Bildad and Sophar, they were, they were from other areas, but they heard what happened to the friend. They're probably rich guys too. And they said, oh, we need to go and come to our friend Job's comfort and, and spend some time with him. They heard what happened to him, so they came. And when they got there, it says they could hardly recognize him. What they saw just shocked them. In fact, it shocked them that so much that it says they wept aloud at what they saw. It says they tore their clothes and they threw dust in the air and on their heads. Again, eastern ways of mourning, showing grief. And then they, it says they sat down beside Job while he sat on a pile of ashes. And it says for seven days they did not utter a word. Why? They didn't know what to say. But they were thinking, what can I say? They sat with him in silence. But after the week of silence, his friends have had time to think about all that's going on, and they're going to try to explain why all this tragedy happens. Well, beginning in chapter 4, his friends begin to speak, taking their turns at trying to make sense of it all, thinking that it might bring Job comfort. And this is the bulk of the story of Job, his friends talking to him and him talking back to his friends. And if you read the story, you have to keep in mind that this is coming from a culture that's very different from ours. We don't sit in piles of ashes. We don't tear our clothes. We don't shave our heads as signs of grief. We go to the doctor when we have boils all over body. We don't sit in a pile of ashes and scrape them with broken pottery. And if you read the story, you've got to keep in mind that that culture is so different from ours, different cultures. Um, so some of what they say in the story sounds very strange to you and me. The other day, Pascal Glock has been an intern here with us all summer. Pascal was um, born and raised in France, and the French culture is what he really knows. He's, he's part American. And, uh, but he knows the French culture, and that's what he relates to best. And, and we were talking about something, and I was getting ready to leave, I think, to go eat lunch. And I said, Pascal, I'm getting ready to go eat lunch. Hold the fort. When I said hold the fort, Pascal, I could tell by the look in his eyes, he's thinking, I have no clue what that means. <laughs> no clue. So I, I said, it means just kind of maintain, you know, just be here and take care of things. <laughs> Hold, he thought I was giving him military orders or something. He did not know. Hold the fort. What is that? His three friends came to the conclusion that all this was happening because there must be some hidden sin in his life. We, we figured out, Job, you've got some kind of sin in your life that nobody but you and God knows about. And you're really a hypocrite. 
And so God's chastening you. But remember, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 3, what did God say about Job? He said, no one else on earth is like him. A man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. He still retains his integrity, even though you incited me against him to destroy him without just cause. It's not Job's fault. They're wrong. These friends use the following arguments to show Job that he was the cause of all this tragedy. And as I go through these, this argument real quick, these arguments, this logic, if you will, ask yourself, if you've ever judged someone's misfortune based on this line of thinking, are we quick to do the same thing as friends did? We think, well, if you live right, you get God's blessing. Amen? No. All right? Don't say Amen. The Job says, no, that's not necessarily true. But we think live right and you get God's blessing. And when you choose sin, God brings bad things to light in your life. And Job, you're getting clobbered by bad things. I don't know anybody who's had so many bad things happen to you. So therefore, you must be pretty bad. You must be pretty wicked. You must be pretty sinful. And you must deserve these horrible things that God's brought about in your life. You ever think that about people when bad things happen to them? Maybe you don't know the, certainly maybe you don't know the whole story. Yet we know none of this is true in Job's case. And then after everyone else has had their say, all, everybody's chimed in. Job's wife, Job's friends, back and forth with Job. And Job's had his speeches that he's made. God speaks to Job. Beginning in chapter 38. I'm going to turn there. You might want to turn there with me. If you're using the Bible that's in the chair, page 480. And from chapter 38 through chapter 41, God basically asks Job a question. Just kind of pretty much one question in this whole chapter. Now, he asks a bunch of different questions, but it's all about the same thing. But God says, let me ask you a question, Job. I love, chapter 38 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. If you want to know God, all the way through chapter 41, really. So it says in verse 1, the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. And he said, who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Who's coming up with this? idea these theories of why this is happening to you they are ignorant who do these people think they are that they can figure me out is what God's going to say to him get ready to answer me Job and I want you to answer me like a man when I question you you will inform me so he begins the questions hey Job where were you when I established the earth Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions, the earth? Who decided how big it was going to be? Certainly you know. Of course, Job knows the answer to that, and the answer is, you, God. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Who laid its... Uh, Who supports its foundations? Who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. He's talking about creation. Hey, Job, who did all that? Who enclosed the sea behind doors when it burst from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its blanket, when I determined its boundaries 
and put its bars and doors in place. When I declared to the sea, to the oceans, you may come this far, but no farther. Your proud waves stop here. Hey, Job, who says those things? Have you ever in your life commanded the morning or assigned the dawn in its place? Do you tell the sun where it comes up, Job? So that it may seize the edges of the earth and shake the wicked out of it. The earth is changed as clay by a seal. Its hills stand out like folds of a garment. Light is withheld from the wicked and, and the arm is raised and, vi- and arm raising violence is broken. Have you traveled, Job, to the sources of the sea? Or walk the depths of the ocean? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? In other words, Job, do you know where hell is? Can you tell me exactly where that is? Have you comprehended the extent of the earth? Job, you thought about how big this planet is. Tell me if you know all this. Of course, Job sits in silence because Job realizes, I don't know any of this. Where is the road to the home of light? Do you know where darkness lives? So you can lead, lead it back to its border. Are you familiar with the paths to its home? Don't you know you were already born? You have lived so long. Have you entered the place where the snow is stored? And where does the snow come from, Job? Have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I hold in reserve for times of trouble and for the day of warfare and battle? What road leads to the place where light is dispersed? Where is the source of the east wind that spreads across the earth? You know these things, Job? No. Who cuts a channel for the flooding rain or clears the way for lightning to bring rain on an uninhabited land, on a desert with no human life, to satisfy the parched wasteland and cause the grass to sprout? Does the rain have a father? Who fathered the drops of dew? Whose womb did the ice come from? Who gave birth to the frost of heaven when water became as hard as stone and the surface of the watery depths is frozen? So he goes on and on. We don't have time to read it all. But he keeps asking all these things of Job. And God, through through these four chapters, God has one question that he's asking Job, and he wants to know. He says, Job, look at the world around you, the planet that you can see, the stars in the sky, the heavens that you can see. Look at all of creation. And he gives example after example, and he asks him, where were you when all this was made and done? And to Job's questions, he simply answers. Turn to chapter 40, verse 4. Verse 3 says, Then Job answered the Lord, after hearing all of these things from God, I am so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. Then God continues rest of chapter 40, God says, let me take it up again. And God continues with more questions, again using examples of nature. Can you do this, Job? And Job answers in chapter 42, 1 through 6. So turn there with me. Can you do any of these things, Job, that I've just talked about? Then Job replied to the Lord. 
I know that you can do anything. Right, let, me, let me stop and ask you a question. Is there anything that God cannot do? Before, then think before you answer that. Is there anything that God cannot do? And the answer to that is yes. God cannot violate his character. God cannot sin. So there's some things that God can't, you know, back in the ancient days, the theologians, um, Errol, you could probably tell us some good stories about this since this is your studies, but you know, can God lift, build a rock, make a rock so big he can't pick it up? Dumb question. How many angels can sit on the head of a pin? Did they debate that at one time, Errol? Not in your classes. But in ancient church history, that became, a, all the bishops would gather and they would scratch their heads. How many angels can sit on the head of a pin? Stupid question. But there are some things that God cannot do. Obviously, he cannot sin. He cannot violate his character. He cannot violate his name. He says, I honor my name above my word. There are some things that, but when Job says you can do anything, he's talking about anything except what would violate your character, obviously. I know you can do anything and that no plan of yours can be thwarted. You ever try to thwart God's plans? Do you? I wonder if we're trying really hard in this country right now to thwart God's plans. I mean, Jesus is coming back. Do you agree with that? And before he comes back, the Bible says things on earth are going to get worse and worse. They're not going to get better and better. Are they getting worse and worse? Wouldn't you like to thwart those plans, though? Yes. You asked, God, you asked, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Well, surely I spoke about things I did not understand. Because Job, when... God answered that question. Job wasn't thinking so much of his friends. He was thinking of himself. Because Job was asking the question too. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. I have no idea. Surely I spoke about things I did not understand. Listen, God, your ways are things too wonderful for me to know. Would you memorize that verse somehow? God, your ways are too wonderful for me to know. You said to me, listen now and I will speak. And when I question you, you will inform me. Job says, I had heard rumors about you, but now that my eyes have seen you, therefore I take back my words and I repent in dust and ashes. Warren Wearsby I read, I read that, so okay, what, what was Job repenting of? Warren Wearsby answers the question this way. He said, God does not charge him. Excuse me, God does charge him with not seeing himself, seeing God, in light of the greatness and majesty of God's. That's what you miss, Job. Job's religious experience is no longer secondhand. He has met God personally, and this makes all his sufferings worthwhile. And the story ends with Job, with God restoring Job's fortune, and he restores it by doubling everything Job had before. So you take all the numbers of everything Job had before and you double it. You don't double the number of children because he still has those children. They're just in heaven. But he gives them again seven sons and three more daughters. In fact, it says his daughters were the best looking girls in the whole world. 
And he gave his daughters equal inheritance with his sons, which was unheard of in their culture. And he lived long enough, another 140 years, to see his great, great grandchildren. So, why does all this happen? Let me give you real quickly some reasons and some things we can take home from this story. Here's a possibility. I don't know that this is the answer, but here's, here's a good possible answer. Why did all this happen to this man? Suffering has a way of purifying our lives. James chapter 5, verse 11 says, you see, we count as blessed those who have endured. Endured what? Endured suffering, endured trial, endured tribulation. We count them as blessed. And then he uses Job as an example. He says, you've heard of Job's endurance and seen the outcome from the Lord. What was the outcome? God blessed him. Double what he had. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. The key to understanding that concept that suffering is a purifying thing in my life, the key to getting a hold of that is being surrendered to it. You see, Job knew he had done nothing to deserve this. But he also knew that God one day would vindicate him. But in chapter 9, verse 35, Job says, I'm on my own. Oh, Job, where's God? I'm on my own. In 1322, he said to God, you know, God, if you'll let up just for a little bit, I'll talk to you. And then you can point out to me whatever sin has caused all this, but I'm suffering so much right now, God, I don't know that I want to hear from you. Would you back off? And then in chapter 31, verses 35 to 37, again speaks about God, and he says about God, you know what, I have no one to speak to. I have no one who will speak up on my behalf. And he believed at that point, after listening to all his friends, God was his opponent. God's against me. Suffering has a way of purifying. The next point is this. The counsel of friends might not get it right. But doesn't the Bible say that in the counsel of many that gives us the opportunity to make wise decisions, and it does say that. It's important to have godly counsel. But if the friends who are giving you counsel don't truly know God, what kind of counsel are they going to give you? It's going to be worldly. It's going to be from their worldview. If they don't know God, how are they going to give you righteous counsel? If you need counsel from time to time, and the fact of the matter is every single one of us does seek it from godly people seek it from people that you know walk with god job's friends they were religious but their conclusions were wrong next point job is completely or excuse excuse me god is completely sovereign in his ways and does not have to explain them to us that's a hard one because we all don't you ever want to ask god why god how come God is completely sovereign in his ways. That means sovereign means he's in control totally. And he has no obligation to explain anything to you and me. Why? Because he's God. Again, you go back to the questions God asked Job. Where were you when all this happened? Who did this and who did that? Not you, Job. I did. 
Because he's God. Job 11, 7 through 9 says this, Can you fathom the depths of God or discover the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? These are words coming from one of Job's friends. They are deeper than Sheol, than the grave. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. Next point is rewards for suffering may not be realized here, but they will be in the hereafter. Suffering doesn't count for nothing. Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verses 18 through 19. And you, you probably you're all familiar with Romans 8, 28. It's right in the center of this passage that I'm talking about. But that whole section, chapter 18 through 39, starts off with these words. The Apostle Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time here on earth, in this life, are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 17 and 18, Paul wrote, For our momentary light affliction. Now here's Paul talking about suffering and affliction, and Paul understood that. I mean, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was shipwrecked, he had all kinds, I mean, he's run out of town, they, they stoned him and left him for dead. Paul says, our present light affliction. Anybody ever been through those kind of things? Not me. But Paul says, our present light, momentary light affliction. Momentary means it's what? It's here and it's gone. It's temporary. Is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Then Paul again, or excuse me, Peter writes in 1 Peter, he says, instead, as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah, Jesus suffered tremendously. Like Job, not for anything he had done. As you share in the sufferings of the Messiah and these people in the first century that Peter's writing to are being persecuted, rejoice. So that you may also rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory. So those who suffer according to God's will. Oh, God. That little phrase right there blows out of the saddle all the prosperity theology in the world. All the you can have your best life now stuff. Right? That's a bunch of heresy. It's a bunch of hogwash. It says right here that sometimes my suffering is what? Tell me, what does it say? God's will. Man. But, I mean, this is what the Bible says. I'm not making this up. So those who suffer according to God's will should, in doing good, entrust themselves to a faithful creator. Oh my God, I don't get it, but I'm in your hands. Did you see that? Those who suffer according to God's will will require that we entrust ourselves to his faithfulness. And I think that was Job. I believe that's Job. Next point, pleasing God was at the top of Job's agenda in life. What's his number one priority in life? Pleasing God. Job's life, before all this stuff happened, 
had proven him faithful to God. I mean, good night when his kids went out and had a party, he was the next day, he's saying, oh, I'm going to sacrifice some things and try to cover their sins for them in case they curse God in their hearts. Well, what a, what a godly man. God was, was clearly impressed with this man compared to most men. And I wonder, if God were to physically show up here today and take a seat right here in this auditorium, and one by one, I mean, he came up, he said, I'm going to come up and sit on your stool, Rick. And he, and he came up and sat on the stool. And then he went one by one of everybody in this room. I mean, there's no, go, no potty breaks, okay? God's here. <laughs> Oh, my pager's going off, my baby's crying. God went one by one through this room and he said, let me tell you what I think about you. What would he say about you? What would he say about me? And the result of Job's life, priority of pleasing God, what was the result of that? The result of his desire to please God was the fact that he could endure. He endured it all. By faith. He never gave up. He never cursed God. He never abandoned the faith. At this point, next point's not in your notes, so find some space to jot this down. It's up on the screen. God knows it all. And Satan thinks he does. All right? God knows it all, and Satan thinks he does. When God said, go after my servant Job, he won't cave in. Satan, what a dummy he, he must have been, because Satan should have known better. God said he's not going to cave in. I guess he's not. But Satan said, I bet I can make him do it. I'm smarter than you, God. Stronger than you, God. And he should have known better. Here's the point. God knows our hearts. He knows when we're strong, and he knows when we're weak. And he knows the outcome of every trial that comes our way, hear me, before it happens. It's not like something happens in your life or mine and God goes, whoa, whoa, where did that come from? Right? He's omniscient. He knows everything. But Satan will do everything he can. Remember, he's roaring like a roaring lion, roaming around this earth, seeking whom he can devour. And he will do everything spiritually, he'll attempt, emotionally, relationally, physically to cause you and me to crash and burn and give up on God and curse him. But God would not allow those things if he did not know. Listen very carefully to this, Christian. If God did not know that by the Holy Spirit's power residing in us, anything that comes our way can be endured and withstood. What does the Bible say about every temptation that comes our way? Every temptation that comes our way, God makes a what? A way of escape. Every time. And that's an advantage that we have over Job. What do you mean? What's the advantage? He did not have the Holy Spirit residing in him as we do today. One more point. If God put me to the test, ask yourself this question. If God put me to the test, how would I respond? If God turned Satan loose on me like he turned Satan loose on Job, what would I do? Would I become angry? Would I become bitter? Would I curse God? Would I commit suicide? Or would I have such a great trust in and love for God who loved me enough to die for me that I would find some way to praise him. 
See, what happened to Job was meant to show Satan. hope Satan wised up after this. To show the devil that a fallen man, a fallen woman, could love and trust God so strongly that he could not be turned against him. But in the end, really, the story, the lesson here was for Job. He had to live a personal experience with God in order to understand God's greatness and God's worth in his life. None of us have lost what Job lost. Not to that magnitude. You may have been bankrupt, but I doubt that you've lost what Job lost. Ten children, servants, homes. But many of us have been through trials. You've been through some trials in your life. I could go around the room and start pointing out people saying, Stand up and tell us. I want you to tell us this story because I know some of your stories. And those trials that you've been through maybe took you to the edge, but only to show you that there is no one greater or more wonderful than our God. Would you pray with me? Father, Your ways are too wonderful for me to grasp. They're higher than mine, wider than mine. And so, Lord, when I come to those times in my life when I think I know better than you, when I have questions that I don't seem to be able to figure out the answer in your word, then at least I can say, I don't know it, but you do, God, so I trust in you. Help me to live that kind of life. Sometimes, God, we have the wrong idea of who you are. And we think you're this, just this kindly grandfather in heaven who wants to give us everything that makes us happy, whose greatest desire is for me to live in comfort. But I know that's not true. Your, your son told me that if we live for you, uh, we're going to suffer. He said to his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation. But then he said, be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. And so we know, God, in the end, you win. And in the end, whether it's here on this earth, as Job received reward at the end, or if it's standing before your son Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, there's going to be reward for those of us who have endured. And so I pray, God, that as we go through life and we go through trials and we go through tests and we go through things we do not understand, that our first temptation is to look at you and shake our fists at you, that we'll stop very quickly and realize, God, I don't get it, but you do. And I trust in you. And may the world see the difference in us because of this relationship we have with you through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.